This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club. Um, My name is Katie Waldman. I'm a staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined today in the DC studio by the writer and critic Jacob Brogan. Hi, Katie. Uh, Jacob is the host of our podcast, Working, so check him out there. And all the way from Paris, France, we are also joined by the Audiobook Club's founder, another writer and critic, Megan O'Rourke. Hi, Megan. Nice to talk to you again. Hi. So good to be here with you, virtually. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about Too Much and Not the Mood, uh, a collection of lyrical essays by Durga Chubos. Um, It is her debut book, um, although she has made a name for herself as as an internet writer, a writer of internet essays. And just want to say up front that our next uh, selection for July will be Miley Malloy's Do Not Become Alarmed. Okay. Too much and not the mood. Um, I have a sense from talking to both of you uh, a little bit before we started recording that you have strong feelings about this. Jacob, will you share just one strong feeling? I, I think that to, to me, the, the best way I can describe reading this book is that it's a little like opening oysters in search of pearls. Hmm. You don't always find a pearl, but there's still this wonderful, strange meat inside and you have the strange sense that it might go well with a gin cocktail. Uh, I, I don't know. I, for the most part, I've, I found it delightful and engaging and, and even when it was frustrating, uh, exciting. Yeah. Do you feel like you have a strong sense of who this writer is? Th- that's a good question because there's a sort of structurally evasive quality uh, to her style of writing. We learn a lot about her, but we're not always getting her. Uh, and that, when I, when I said that sometimes frustrating, it's it, you want more. You want the clearer contours of the person sometimes. Uh, but it, it's the things that crop up on the margins of her prose, of her paragraphs, of, of the essays. It's, it, it's not the full figures, but the shadows that you see flitting across the edges of the room uh, that I found most engaging and, and sometimes most beautiful here. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe we should back up and try to uh, shade in a little bit of uh, what we do know about this writer. Uh, so she talks about being the child of first-generation immigrants from India, um, and they become separated, I think, when she is... Her parents separate. Yeah, her right. parents separate. Um, how old is she when she is a preteen or maybe an adolescent? Twelve, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, and we hear about her sort of turbulent 20s uh, in New York City. Uh, we hear about sort of her sense of being at, on the periphery of her own life just because she's used to inhabiting white spaces. Mm -hmm. And she she talks about the, the sort of ongoing process of clocking her brownness, which yeah, was, was an interesting... bring up that phrase. Yeah, an interesting way to put it. Um, it's not that um, her brownness, as she, as she describes it, didn't play a role in her life, but she um, only recently has sort of been uh, bringing her consciousness to bear on the role it played. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to say, like, it is kind of – that's a sparse uh, amount of detail um, given that this book is – it is 221 pages long, um, and I'm sure I'm obviously leaving out a lot of biographical information, but we don't learn a whole lot about her from a sort of, um, from uh, I guess in comparison to a lot of memoirs. We've seen a lot of criticism recently of the whole category of the so-called personal essay, and, and in many ways, this book and the pieces that make it up, many of which originally showed up and sites like BuzzFeed and, and elsewhere on the internet, uh, is a product of, of the personal essay boom of the last decade. But in other ways, it's it's very much uh, a flirtation with something more like the impersonal essay, where the personal is present more as a, a ghost than a determining factor. Yeah, Megan, I want to bring you in. Uh <laughs> yeah, oh, a couple of things. Really interesting. Well, first of all, I'm sort of laughing inwardly at, at Jacob, you describing the boom of the personal essay of the last decade. And I know there were a bunch of pieces recently about this, but I'm laughing because when I began working in publishing as an editorial assistant at The New Yorker, it was like this endless series of pieces about the boom of the autobiographical, the age of the memoir. And it kind of feels to me that like every decade has proclaimed itself like the decade of the, <laughs> you know, fair. this is the apogee of the personal and the memoir ever since... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's, I think, a kind of historical context here of this ongoing, you know, um, autobiographical writing. Um, but there's certainly something particular that's been happening with the Internet, with young writers, you know, so-called millennials um, and the Internet and places like BuzzFeed. What I... So, so as Katie knows, I have some strong feelings about this book, um, which are which are mixed. As I've thought about it more, they're more mixed. And I, at first, I was having a lot of difficulty ex accepting this book. Um, but here's what I would say: what I found very appealing about this book, and what has really, to my interest, really sat with me and kind of, um, you know, opened up inside me, is there's something quite eccentric about it, right? There's something, and it has to do with what, what you two are talking about in terms of like the sparseness of autobiographical detail. Um, because on the one hand, we know not that much about um, this, this first person essayist. But on the other hand, I think there is a real sense of becoming companionable with her mind, with her mind kind of meandering um, 
and it's, it makes me think of these are essays kind of in errancy, which is to say there's a kind of real meandering, wandering quality to them, which is a virtue and I think a real weakness in many places. Um, but they, the book made me think quite a lot about a novel uh, in short stories that, that you may or may not have read that came out last year called Pond by Claire Louise Bennett, which That's I reviewed a, yeah. for the Times because – you know, th- that book, in similar way, you get to have this sense of real intimacy with this woman who's slightly eccentric. And of course, it's a it's short stories, so it's a fictionalized persona. But um, there's a similar sense of intimacy with both of these um, female persona, first persons, and they're both somewhat unusual. They're both somewhat not quite what you expect them to be. And and that's what I really liked about this book. Um, what Katie has heard me say is that I just found it insanely frustrating to read because I do think she is talented and up to something interesting, I thought there was just like very little control over it. And I was shocked in some places by how little control there was given how good certain segments were. And part of my shock was kind of the shock of an editor, actually. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, it's remarkable that FSD published this without a little more editing because some of the sentences literally just don't make any sense. I mean, they just don't syntactically work. They're not they're just not good sentences. I mean, they're not even not good sentences. There are a lot of bad sentences, but there are sentences that literally just don't track. And, you know, again, to give her credit or to sort of acknowledge what she's up to, she is working. Um, she's working a very unusual style. She's working a kind of expansive, periodic sentence that is kind of questing toward meaning as it progresses. So there's a lot of clauses. But uh, <laughs> there were times where I was just so frustrated. You know, Jacob, I loved your metaphor of this, you know, it's, but it was like eating a lot of oysters with not enough pearls, right. you know, and I thought, wow, it would have been such a different experience or like opening the oysters and there was no oyster, you know? And so I just thought, wow, like with a little more work, a little more discipline, you know, this would have been such a different experience. And I think, you know, maybe it's probably that I'm here in my guise as someone teaching nonfiction writing that I was like feeling especially frustrated. <laughs> I was like, wait, this could have been such a strong book. And I think instead it's, it's a very up and down book. Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> I like your <laughs> description of its sort of peripatetic eccentricity. There's a phrase that uh, Katie and I were talking about this morning. And, and here, uh, this is literally – it's not even a phrase. It's just a piece of a sentence that I'm pulling out without any context. But where she, she speaks of – she says, call something this parish of miscellany. I think it's the stuff on her friend's table or something like this. I don't, don't recall the mm. exact moment right now. Um, but there is a way in which uh, there's, a, there's a kind of – gathering here it's it's like she's constantly mm-hmm. building these shrines but but to what end it's not always clear so you you know uh she's a bit of a magpie she is you know, she, yeah. co- she collects shiny mm-hmm. objects and i and love sometimes shiny sentences yeah and i love a lot of her observations i do think when when we talk about what makes her quirky or eccentric like it's her eye you know it's it's the way that it, it's an association it's a description as opposed to necessarily an insight like I think that she it's funny Mm -hmm. because she has Mm -hmm. very beautiful descriptions um and yet the sort of the ideas like the conceptual scoops as you might say at Slate um the observations that she makes are pretty I wouldn't say eccentric you know like nook people the sort of the the collection of things that we're supposed to identify with as as nook people if we are felt 
not boilerplate, but you know, oh, you you like enclosed、mm-hmm. spaces, you like hot tea.、Um, I wonder if it's worth backing up and、uh, just because that is such a, a striking phrase of hers,、uh, the the nook people thing, Katie. Yeah.、Um, so is it in Heart Hotel? It Heart, is. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, Yeah, she talks about being like this this sort of type of creature that is a nook person, and she she names herself one of these people、um, who sort of gravitate towards. And I'm not sure if she says this well, f- you know, explicitly towards nooks, towards enclosed spaces, and and being comforted and kind of enclosed and immersed. She, she writes, "I don't require much to feel far removed to impose my wanderings on what's close." Because of this, my friend and I have started calling ourselves Nook people, those of us who seek corners and bays in order to redeploy our hearts and not break the mood, those of us who retreat in order to cubicle our flame, who collect sea glass, who value a deep pants pocket. I mean, in some ways, this does describe a lot of what this collection of essays is doing: gathering things,、mm-hmm. magpie-like, as you said.、Uh, and in other ways, it's just sort of a description of any. Vaguely, vaguely inwardly turning person who is a writer or fancies himself a writer who would potentially be reading a collection of essays published by FSG. I mean, it's hard to imagine a reader for this book who would not say, "Oh yes, I'm a Nook person too." I don't want to cubicle my flame. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> What that、flame? means. <laughs> Although I, I must say, I do love the way that she uses、um, unexpected verbs. Like she talks about pedestaling、um, these older white、mm-hmm. girls,、um, and I love cubicle my flame, pedestal these. Women,、um, anyway, but yeah, no, I agree, and I think that something also intrinsic to this、uh, nook person characterization is a kind of self voyeurship. I'm not sure if that's a word she actually uses、uh, when, if she talks、mm. about like self voyeurism. I think she might,、um, but she's constantly sort of、um, she's examining herself in this kind of like not delighted because that sounds smug. Uh, or you know, not self delighted, but she takes a lot of pleasure in looking, and she is often looking inward.、Um, and I guess one quibble that I ended up having with the book is I'm not sure that there was enough. I mean, it's not like she needed to be kidnapped by pirates or something, <laughs> but you know what she found when she looked inward were, were these sort of moments、mm. of wonder. Like I, I left the theater and I felt so sort of swept aloft, and and a part of me was kind of like, good for you, you know, feeling wonder is a great thing. But you know, I, I think I, I wanted more of a sense of <laughs> stakes I, or tragedy. Sorry, go ahead, Megan. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Can I jump in? Well, no. I'm so you. You both are saying such interesting things, and I have I have a question for us all. But for, before I get to the question, I guess absolutely. I mean, I think that、um, I'm laughing because the book made me feel very old. <laughs> I felt like I just was like,、oh, yeah, okay, like I get it, but like, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is I'm being harsher than I am, because, than I mean to be, because I actually I really I, like. Let me put it this way: I would love to read her next book. I think part of my frustration was that I was like, okay, you are, you are. I think you could be a really good essayist. You're kind of letting yourself off easy. Like, there's just not enough work put into these. And part of it has to do with the actual structure and writing of the pieces and how long they go on and how, you know, she's going for this meandering thing. But again, you have to have discipline to that structure, right? You want the structure to kind of find its its form,、um, whatever that form is. And it feels like the form isn't here yet. And then, yeah, I had that. 
not response where I thought, oh, kind of like you were thinking, like, okay, good for you. Like she starts the essay about going to the movies in the summer, which I, which I like, but she starts it by being like, I call them the movies. I don't say <laughs> a movie. And I'm like, yeah, we all do. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's not that interesting. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's, it's funny. I, I don't, I'm saying I, this because... Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it, it's funny that you would... You, you speak of her letting herself off easily. There's there's a bit near the end of Heart Hospital, the enormous, expansive uh, first yeah. essay of, of the collection, which I think both shows her promise uh, as an essayist, um, but, but also exhibits many of the things that, that one might find frustrating uh, about it. Um, she says... How being hard on myself is oddly a lazy system for letting myself off the hook. Mm. Um, which do you yeah. think she's doing? Is she yeah. letting herself off I the hook? Or, both. Or, or, I mean, yeah. I think she does both. And I think that's what's quite – that's why I I kind of circled back. I reread a few of them and I came to – I think I was so driven crazy by the lack of control over her language um, that it was hard for me to enjoy what she, what she was doing when she was doing it. I was, I was jet lagged and annoyed. <laughs> and then I reread the book when I was less jet lagged and more patient. Um, and I didn't reread the first essay because that was the one I had the most trouble with. And I found much more to enjoy in it. And I, I think that what's quite interesting about her and one reason I would pick up her next book is that there is something there. There's some aesthetic there that's, that's, complex and um, kind of paradoxical and very literary, but kind of contemporary. Um, perhaps because I was in Paris, I was also thinking about Proust, though she's not like Proust in many ways. But one way she is, is that she's very interested in interior solitary experience of the mundane, mm-hmm. right? And of what that of what that kind of interior experience feels like. Um, so she's an essay about living alone that, you know, I thought was spotty, but had some nice moments. But she's an essay about things she cannot unhear that I thought had a lot of really interesting moments in it. That is just, you know, these little moments in a life, um, and then how they end up constellating, how these dots end up becoming a constellation that accrues to some larger meaning that is not, you know, um, can't be like normatized or regularized for other people, but that we all have our own. And there, were, there were moments like that where I thought she, in getting into some very real particulars mm-hmm. um, in that piece, she talks about falling from a a rope bridge in Copper Canyon in Mexico. Let me just find it. And she writes about the sound that she made while she fell. And I thought that was just incredibly haunting. Um, Let me see if I can find it. She says, but what comes to mind most from that day is the sound that slipped from my mouth as my foot fell through the plank. It's hardly a sound and mostly a breath, a gasp that was cut short as if sliced by a butcher's knife. It sounds something like, ha, Huh, like the laziest reaction, like a giving into an agreement sort of. I can never unhear that gasp. It wasn't the sound of my life flashing before me. It was the very human understanding that gravity was real and that I was about to fall and that nothing was going to catch me. I mean, that's really good, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, but I guess what I wanted to ask you both was, and because I think if I were if I were her editor, partly this is what I would ask her too, is, you know, well, a broader question for us, I think that's interesting is, you know, what, what are, what do we think essays can accomplish? Like what, what is an essay up to? An essay is kind of a strange form. Um, and I guess this goes back to Katie's question about what's at stake here. And I was trying to grapple with like, what's she really up to? Like, what is she really trying to do in these pieces in this and, and with the essay as a form, let's say, because 
I had sort of different answers at different points, and I was just curious what what you both thought. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, Jacob and I are both exchanging glances like, you go, no, you go. (laughs) Um, I think, I mean, what's curious to me is that the the words that are occurring to me are words that I normally associate with poetry. Like I was thinking, Mm -hmm. you were talking about one of the sort of um, appealing aspects of her mind being this kind of humility and and she she dwells in the mundane and it reminded me of Marianne Moore Mm -hmm. talking about humility Mm -hmm. and concentration Mm -hmm. and gusto and I think she's got the gusto down like she absolutely yeah there's like a real sort of delight again it's the magpie kind of uh gleeful collection impulse um and I think that concentration is there in in a sort of uh, not in the sense of rigor or discipline necessarily, necessarily, right. but right. in how um, how hard you have to work to sort of um, take off the shells of these sentences. Uh, she mm. describes writing as a closed pistachio nut, and I think like there is a lot of signification in each sentence, but you have to work at it, and and the payoff I think can often be really great, but. Um, but it's not easy to read this book, I don't think. Um, maybe you guys had a different experience. And, no, and but sometimes that's because of a style that's a successful style, and sometimes that's because of bad sentences. Hmm. You know, that's my theory. Um, um, yeah. But I anyway. mean, you, you say, what is the essay for? And I, I don't know if this is a normative answer, but it's the answer that that comes to me in relationship to this book, which is that the essay essays uh, this inevitably this attempt to, to tarry with a certain paradox with, on the one hand, this deep intimacy with yourself, with your own preoccupations, with the things that uh, fascinate you in ways that, in theory at least, they don't fascinate anyone else. And on the other hand, it's this attempt to to reach out, to, to achieve some kind of recognition, uh, some kind of acknowledgement from a reader. Um, no one writes an essay, no one writes a good essay for themselves alone. But they always write it of themselves, whether or not it is a personal essay. And that's a beautiful answer, Jacob. <laughs> well, I, I, I think no, that's really helpful. I think that the best moments in this book are the ones that dwell in that paradoxical space. I, I, I you know, my my experience of of Heart Hotel in particular, I think, was was very different than yours. I, I read it not jet lagged, but on an airplane on my way to a tiki convention mm. in Florida. <laughs> And I kept <laughs> crying in my middle seat, you know, conscious of wow. the fact that I was yeah. surrounded by other people, not because the essay as a whole made sense to me. It, it didn't really. And even at the end, when, when she comes around to the, the Heart Museum uh, mm. instead of the Heart Hospital, I, I, I was struck by it, but I didn't quite understand what I had read. And that I don't know that, whether that's my fault or, or the essay. So instead, it was these glimmering striking sudden moments of self-recognition that would come up in in single mm. clauses or, or or sentences or or occasionally uh paragraphs and one one passage that Katie and I had talked about a week or two ago was was one where just sort of in an offhand way she she says something about how you know her heart doesn't stop or doesn't overquicken or whatever it is uh even when in the ATM machine uh accidentally shows you your balance <laughs> 
Um, and that, I'm, which I'm sure is an experience that, that so many people have, but I've never seen put to words before that the, yeah. the panic of knowing how much money you have yeah. <laughs> in your bank account when you've been trying to avoid thinking about that. I mean, that was, it's been a long time since I was young and in New York and in my twenties, but, but that was what it was like to be 22, 23 yeah. in New York uh, in my twenties was was this yeah. this terror of ATM machines. Every and her self deprecation, yeah. it should be said. I <laughs> yeah. mean, she some of the best moments I think in the book are are very self deprecating. She also has yeah. this image of I knew it was time to leave the wedding when I was making a drunken circuit between the dance or among the dance floor, the bar, and other guests' uneaten slices of wedding cake. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I just thought that was yeah. the most delightful like that. description. That was a lovely sentence. That was a great yeah. moment. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. There are moments where I didn't recognize the experience she was describing, but I still found something exciting and stimulating in it. I mean, one of the, you know, the one kind of striking bit is when she's talking about uh, Sharon Stone and she says it's not her uncrossing her legs, but uh, Mm -hmm. uh, shoulders uh, accelerating her pulse, um, shoulders that make her uh, say, whoa. Um, And that moment of inverting a common object of fetishism, finding something else, of focusing on her own uh, detail um, was uh, fascinating and, and, and showed me something about her mind that wasn't the shape of her personhood, uh, just something about a, yeah. a pair of yeah. eyes watching the world. It's interesting. I mean, I definitely think, you know, I'm thinking of the, you know, if we think of the form – you know, one one origin of the form being Michelle Montaigne's essays and the idea mm-hmm. of an essay as um, an attempt, right? That's what I think it meant in French. I, I try. We, I, it's, a, it's an attempt. This, you know, in that sense, these really are essays, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. kind of forays into consciousness and into, as you were saying, Jacob's fascinations that are one's own, but perhaps not others, and the attempt that in the, in the hope that in rendering them, one comes to understand more about oneself and also to, as you say, connect with the reader. I think I wish that what I would say about this book is it has really stayed with me. So that is, for me, always a sign of a real sensibility, you know, and I think that that is fully formed. I think her sensibility is fully formed. Mm-hmm. I I don't feel partly because her sensibility is so particular, one wishes the style was as controlled um, as the sensibility is formed. I think that's, I think that's part of what, what was going on for me. And, you know, to give an example of that, there were moments where she would go, she would have a really lovely sequence. She likes little litanies. That's Mm -hmm. one of her techniques. Um, And she likes to rove and the roving, you know, is a mode that can work really well, but again, it kind of wants to, I kept thinking of the term Roland Barthes had the punctum. Have you guys come across this? It's an idea he had about like the, the part of the photograph that makes the whole kind of intense. This would be Sharon Stone's shoulders for her. 
in some ways. Right. But I felt like sometimes the essay kind of lost its punctum in mm-hmm. its mm-hmm. kind of willingness to put everything down. And sometimes I thought, no, 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 no. Now is where you cut that paragraph. Right. <laughs> you know, and you let us sit with the image and you and you go and you go to the next. And I'm looking for examples of where, um, you know, I want to find it. But yeah, I, I can't find the example I'm thinking of. But for every wonderful sentence, I'll read a sentence that I thought kind of just gets overwritten and the, and sort of belabored. So, for example, in Part of a Greater Pattern, which had some just truly wonderful writing about identity and, as you were saying, about um, the kind of clocking brownness and her relationship to these white girls she grew up around. I mean, some of that was just so wonderful. But then sometimes there are sentences that I'm so in the writing. She's describing watching older girls ready to go out, and I just love the scene. And then it just loses me because the sentence says, because she's talking about watching the girls, you know, part their hair and do their makeup, because observing any woman smudge shiny powder down her brow bone to her cheekbone or flutter blink her lashes between strokes of mascara or delicately part her lips when lining her eyes, those rapidly precise, tidy, messy and poured over motions, feels closest to catching a glimpse of her acquiring the world with quiet enormity from that faraway planet, her mirror. I don't know. It just starts to, that's actually not a good example because that sentence is okay, but it just starts to get (laughs) so um, labored. Like on the previous page, for example, she has this thing about girls kind of taking their scarves off and she says, delivering their long necks from circuits of wool scarf was as as ever a sight to behold and sight is S-I-T-E. And I was like, is that a pun or is it supposed to be S-I-G-H-T? But all those little like as evers and um, there's a lot of these like then and now and those are the moments I was like, ah, you don't, you don't need to say like as ever. It kind of makes you sound like faux profound. (laughs) Yeah, actually, (laughs) I I have a name for this uh, little tick. I called them her little mermaidisms because she will often have like a thing where she'll say um sentence sentence can you believe it adjective or like sentence Uh sentence um and I'm Mm -hmm. still working this out and they're like separated by m dashes and then there will be like a single word on the other end of the m dash and it's like in the REL part of your world song where she's what do you call them legs (laughs) and I felt like she did that Uh, a lot I was like why is it Little Mermaid I never saw the movie (laughs) oh I'm sorry yeah no she has this um the the mermaid has a, a song where she'll she's sort of um acclimating herself to the vocabulary of the mm-hmm. of the land lovers and so she has all these objects mm-hmm. and she'll be singing about them mm-hmm. and then she'll say what do you call it fork or like a fork or something and and it's sort of like this word is so pregnant with meaning because you have a little setup to it and I, I just felt like she did that all the time mm-hmm. um in the yeah. essay yeah which is too bad because it's such a delicate concoction her her yeah. her paragraph her in you know you kind of settle into this watching that she does. And it's, it's so, um, when it's good, it, she's, as Jacob was saying, she kind of describes these moments or scenes or feelings that we've all had. I mean, it made me think a little bit too about like Carl Ova Knausgaard, who's mm. not stylistically, but just in the sense that part of what people were responding to in those, those novels, I think was a sense of very ordinary moments being described that we've all experienced of, you know, mm. divided attention, you know, worrying about climate change while cleaning the dishes and talking mm. on the phone. Right. And there's something very modern or contemporary about the kind of multiplicity of, these feelings and these kind of little observations you're making in your head while doing things. And I feel like she does that also very well, but 
I wanted to be suspended in her voice and mind, and I kept getting pushed back out a little bit. You know, I wrote an essay a while back about uh, Nausgaard where I described the experience of reading those those bits that you describe as feeling a little bit like drowning. Uh, I, I felt mm. swallowed up mm. by them. Here, she sort of sends the reader like a stone skipping across the surface of the water instead. You you know there's an ocean yeah. beneath you, but yeah. you don't get to sink into it. And uh, mm. I, I wonder if I wanted that more or less. I, I don't I don't know, actually. It's weird because you're talking about it in terms of really depth. And I my quibbles are sort of in my head, I'm framing, framing them in terms of shape. Mm. So it's not that it doesn't go deep enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just like these when it wasn't working, it felt the essays felt shapeless. And that's why I really appreciated the shorter ones because I guess shapelessness is more uh, frustrating when it's a very big shape or big um, something. Um, So Moby Dick, for instance, I thought was beautiful. Um, I wonder if we could even just like pick a few of these short essays to talk about more closely. Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, did, did you guys, I think Megan, you said you liked Moby Dick as well, right? Um, I did like Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. This is the mm-hmm. one that's sort of about recon- reconciling yourself to the fact that you're going to be very, very bored by a lot of reading. <laughs> um, she's We see her in the library. Uh, she's procrastinated, which also kind of plays a thematic role in this uh in this collection is the idea of procrastination um, but and sort of like the spaces in between writing and productivity, like what is happening there, what kind of gestation or germination is happening. But um, anyway, after procrastinating, she winds up in her college library and she is trying to plow through Moby Dick and she finds it immensely unpleasurable and she keeps longing for distractions and then she sort of again it's like plunging through the the planks of the bridge she kind of falls off a bridge into this description of um the baby whales who um who are mm-hmm. it <laughs> i guess one has its umbilical cord attached to the mother whale um and she yeah. just appreciates she lingers on this lovely image and then Suddenly, she snaps out of it and realizes that there at her feet is um, is a cord, just a coiled cord, um, and that is and yeah, like then, an extension or lamp cord or something. Yeah. yeah, and the last sentence is the library will soon close for the night. Um, someone, someone, what do you make of that? <laughs> what I, I love, I loved this one. Yeah, I yeah. do too. I, you know, and I, I didn't. This one I didn't leave an impression on me in the first pass, but hearing you describe it now, I uh, and and looking at it, my own uh, open book here, uh, I one of the things that I found I, I found myself underlining a lot of passages or mm-hmm. highlighting a lot of passages as I was reading about about writing, but I actually. In general, I find people's descriptions of their writing processes very boring. <laughs> and and while her phrases were sometimes striking, you know, descriptions of, of writing as this kind of, you know, glorious excess where you lose yourself, there's actually like the, the internality of reading in – it seems much more in keeping with the general tone of the book than any description uh, of writing does. That, that feeling of losing yourself in a description when you've been putting off the act of reading uh, and, and, and you finally really get into it is, is – glorious. Yeah. You know, I think to to her credit, and one thing that um, with my my reservations about the book that I 
felt very strongly the entire time and should underscore here is that I think she's up to something that's hard to do. You know, I think that use the word internality, Jacob, and that made me think of, you know, she's very interested in these kind of internalities, these states, these kind of aqueous states of the mind, um, but not in a, at her best, not in like a portentous or heavy handed way. I mean, that's sort of what's nice about it is sort of the contemporary lightness of tone and preoccupation with the everyday, but then this kind of solitary, you know, internal, slow, you know, it, it these don't feel like essays that were like published on the internet, actually, in a lot of ways, you know, they, they have this kind of restless slowness, which is part and, and, you know, wordiness, <laughs> mm-hmm. which maybe in a way is, is a virtue given that, given that sort of impulse to have everything come to its point that we, in the world we live in. Um, but I loved about this essay and what I think works really well about it is that I do think this, Katie, you were talking about shape being one of your reservations, you know, that this sort of piece is feeling shapeless. And, and that is one of my primary reservations, both shape of sentences and shape of the essays, because I, I do think that while an essay can meander, it's these kinds of essays are quite like poems in a way, in the sense that a poem really is made by its structure um, and by its style. And, um, She's juxtaposing a lot in very interesting ways. And also, I think, like a poem, um, casting a kind of spell where we're drawn out of our transactional mind, both our transactional mind and our transactional use of language, where I say, um, how much does the sandwich cost, right? And into a meditative language, um, an experience that's almost kind of rhythmic. And so, you know, you want those shapes to really work. And in this essay, you know, I thought, ah, we see what happens when she can really control her shape. Um, and it's, it's just, it's small. It's not, it's not the most ambitious piece. It's not the most striking moment, you know, a piece of writing in the book in some ways, but it's kind of a very successful it, it, it's like a, it's a machine, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a contraption, it's an aesthetic contraption that was very pleasing. And I thought that's what I've been looking for from her. Um, you know, which again is why I'm very interested in her, her next work. Um, and again, and not even that this is the, my favorite insights in the book or anything like that, but just there's a kind of confidence and authority and achievement in the writing that I thought, um, really, and the use of quotation and just, uh, it's really lovely, yeah. really lovely just description of a kind of reverie that we've all been in where you're almost like looking at something without looking at it and then your eyes focus on it and you see what it is and it, it's strangely resonant. It's quite beautiful. There, there's a, a a through line, an umbilical cord that, yeah. that uh, connects mm-hmm. one paragraph to the next uh, in this essay that we don't necessarily see in, in a lot of the others. And sometimes I like to think of a, a good essay as a, a kind of crystalline object where uh, even if mm. one paragraph doesn't clearly connect with the, the next, they all hold together in this highly facets, faceted shape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in the book as a whole, this book as a whole, I, I don't see a lot of those crystalline objects. I just see a lot of uh, diamonds scattered uh, <laughs> on the floor mm. before me, and I, I, I want to mm-hmm. scoop them up. I want to gather yeah. them together, but I also did sometimes want them in, in the way that this Moby Dick essay is. This, this short little essay is, uh, I wanted them to come together into something uh, more complete. Yeah. I mean, a few things that struck me about this essay that made it different from um, the others, aside from the the questions of length that we've already talked about um, and consistency, is um, I think 
she does a really great job of balancing ambiguity with the sense of determinancy. Um, like everything feels as though it had to happen that way, and yet when you see the uh, when you see the cord at her feet, it, to me that was I didn't really know what to make of that. But is, is it a letdown? Is it uh, this is such a, a a bereft image compared to like the mysterious, beautiful um, subterranean whale scene, or hmm. or is this is there like a continuity between uh, these two chords? And I mean, the chord itself is such a potent symbol, too, for an essayist who's mm. trying to connect to someone else and whose thoughts are kind of traveling uh, along a thread of connection, kind of like beads or like nutrients along a chord uh, to the mind of the of the reader. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, there was just there's a lot more design, which I guess is what you guys have been saying is that you could feel that this was a tightly controlled um, essay. As again, uh, as opposed to again, someone falling off a bridge and yeah. being exhilarated. <laughs> well, here we also see though what her observational eye can do with the ordinary. You know, we have Melville uh, describing this this astonishing scene that of a kind that so few people will ever see. I've, I've been reading a lot about narwhals recently mm. for for something I'm working on. And oh, uh, you know, just. <laughs> just you know, just just the narwhal stuff. <laughs> uh, but but you, you know, really realizing. How remarkable a scene of of uh, uh, baleen life can be, uh, if that's the right word. Uh, but but here, there's something almost as remarkable in her description of the cord itself. I finish the chapter and look up from my page, and then down at the library's carpet beneath my feet, and there, coiled and dragging, is a cord. Lengths of it looping and alive, winding, tangled. The janitor has started vacuuming. I mean. It, it, is that there's some way in which that's that punctum that that we were maybe missing in some of the other essays mm. that that yeah. Bardian figure mm-hmm. the, the the remarkable detail I mean Bart Bart is talking uh, in the essay you're alluding to a uh, book you're alluding to about photographs and about the the eccentric detail that that pulls you in uh, mm-hmm. even if it's right. not the right. center right. point exactly. of the thing there's no world in which uh, a vacuum cord is ordinarily the center of any image uh, of any life, but here I mean, it, it might becomes be pulling that. something in, but it's right. dust bunnies. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, here, here, the incidental you know, object becomes the important one, and that's and that's a pretty glorious act, I think. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I think that, and I may have appropriated Bart's for my own for my own sort of sense of something that happens in writing. Although I think this is part of what he means that, you know, that it's not just the detail that pulls you in, but also the detail. The way that a moment or the way that um, a a detail within a shape, let's Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. makes everything kind of constantly in a centripetal or centrifugal way that's quite satisfying and intense, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of that dynamic that, you know, there are many of these interesting moments, but that, that kind of dynamic of the relationship between the paragraph, the moment, the insight, the mood, and the shape, Right. That that becomes a very vibrating and dynamic thing, um, you know, happens happens here. And it doesn't always happen. It happens in places, but not, not always. I quite liked the last essay, too. I don't know whether you um, liked that one, too, at my least and most aware. I mean, the end of it, I thought, had some really beautiful 
maybe it's really the end of it that I liked where she's talking about what are the moment, the movements of a home. I just thought mm-hmm. that last paragraph. So there are paragraphs that I just, you know, I starred and thought this is something really special is happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that essay also yeah. had one of my favorite paragraphs in, in the book, uh, you know, which is something that could almost as easily belong in that uh, essay about things you can't unhear where she says it still comes to me. It still comes as a shock to me how irreversible life is how there's no going back to whatever version of me existed before I saw that movie, the kind that switches me on to new streaks of consciousness by showing me a woman I feel strangely formally acquainted with. Um, That discovery of yourself in in the detail, in the sudden shift, uh, in the unlikely discovery uh, of something other than yourself is – it's pretty cool when it happens. It doesn't always happen, yeah. but when it does, yeah. it's, it's it's a wonderful thing to to spotlight and to. to Ugh, I'm going to push back and be the philistine here. <laughs> who I find that kind of revelation. I mean, when you guys talk about it, it seems very potent. But to me, I just it, it feels cheesy, and and it feels like the exact kind of revelation that personal essays are precision tuned to deliver, mm-hmm. and you expect mm-hmm. it five minutes before it comes and then it comes and you check off the box and then read the next essay. I just, uh, I'm, that's too harsh. And I really do admire her a lot. And I, I, I do mm-hmm. um, find a lot to love in these essays. But I also think that the prevailing tone is this kind of tristful. <laughs> that was like the perfect word that I mm-hmm. stumbled on by accident because um, it right. was in my that's inbox. Right. But <laughs> This wistful and tristful and quizzical and whimsical, all these words that sound the same and kind of mean the same. It's just like a a little bit of melancholy. And even when she describes like my sense of beauty is tinged with the perishable, that's a very old idea. That's Keats. That's it. it, I think also a part of me kind of yearned for her frame of reference to be a little bit bigger. Like one thing that I loved about the Moby Dick essay was she talked about, or maybe she was quoting Melville, but she said, the whale is curved like a tartar's bow. And that was such a breath of fresh air for me because I was thinking, oh my gosh, a tartar, archery. Um, I wanted more of that. I mean, these, all these details and these comparisons and these words are are sort of like peanut M&Ms and global warming and our (laughs) moment. And I think I wanted more just like I don't know, Norse gods or something, just like a little bit bigger frame of reference. Yeah, I think, you know, and in that paragraph that Jacob, you were quoting from, she has all these, you know, I talked about her using litanies and she has all these examples of like, you know, this is, it still comes as a shock to me how there's no going back to whatever version of me when I do this or this or this or this. Mm -hmm. And I agree, those, the list of examples, it goes on for a long time (laughs) and it's like, okay, it feels, that's part of what I mean when I say I started to feel old because Mm -hmm. I was wondering what I felt much more charitably toward this as a 28 year old or 29 year old Megan, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would have, but, but it's hard for me to separate out some of my impatience is, okay, I I need to be getting something from this a little bit more. Um, And that's part of what I think I was trying to get at earlier of feeling like she settles too quickly or doesn't work hard enough or isn't disciplined enough. And, And it's, it's frustrating because I think what I find unusual about this book is there are flickers of what I think of as really true talent. And there are other parts that just seem so 
uh, the ear just seems so, and the structure seems so off to me that I think, wow, it's really strange. It's not strange that you would draft this. Like that's what everyone's draft looks like. But it seems so odd to me that someone who has that ability to write this paragraph would publish the essay in this in this state. And I, I think she has a real um, kind of decision to make as a writer about, you know, I think she, there's some kind of sort of discipline to the prose that needs to get pushed a bit more um, or should be given that she does have this, this talent, because like you, Katie, there were just moments where I thought, well, you know, I, yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense in a draft, but then wouldn't you kind of read it and push bring us the new image or straight or tighten that sentence or kind of cut this section that feels a little, you know, self-indulgent would be one word for it. Um, you compared it to uh, Claire Louise Bennett's Pond earlier, which is a novel, a work of fiction, but one that feels like autobiography at times. Um, did you find those same problems in, in her prose uh, or, or structure? Not as much. No, I actually think, I think that whatever, I reviewed that book really positively. I really liked it. I thought one problem maybe, I thought she was very tight, that she really had rendered the pieces in a very taut and tight way. Maybe sometimes actually there was too much elision in those pieces, mm-hmm. um, you know, that sort of, you might almost want her to kind of put more on the page. And and maybe there, what, what maybe was there that's a little bit similar, um, one reservation I might have had about it was that it. You know, it, the sort of ols that that Katie was was invoking the whimsical, quizzical. You know, it's a little enchanted with its own, you know, aesthetic in a way that I actually found very persuasive because I thought the prose was very controlled for the most part in that book. Um, in a way that I don't find it so much um, here, but. But it's a risk, right? The sort of risk of preciousness, um, which totally, I think that that this book really does a good job of mostly skirting. Um, it's not, but in other ways, it it doesn't skirt it. If that makes sense. I mean, totally, I was like, oh, I'm interested, but I sometimes thought, okay, maybe you could have more insight, more wisdom, more surprise. I don't know, something. I was sort of feeling like it wasn't quite always coalescing with that. Yeah. I think one thing we haven't gotten into uh, much yet, although we touched on it a little at the beginning and, and have glanced by it throughout, are the various and varied ways that uh, that she grapples with her own um, marginality, with with ethnicity, with, with her status. Uh, uh, as a first-generation uh, resident of Canada and then the United States um, with with gender and, and so on. I wonder if either of you have thoughts on the ways that those issues crop up here. I mean, I thought those were some of the strongest parts of the book, actually. Um, yeah, I thought she... I thought she wrote really, um, really vividly and... Um, just, I was really kind of um, just caught up in those, in the section, especially we we touched on this earlier, but the section where I think it's called, I'm going to forget, Part of a Greater Pattern, mm-hmm. where she touches on um, different kinds of scrutiny and, as I was saying, sort of this watching these white girls and then kind of realizing her own relationship to them and her own difference from them and where she felt difference and where she didn't felt difference. I thought 
feel difference. I thought um, that was really powerful. And I think her portraits of her parents, which is one of the ways she also talks about marginality, are some. That was some of my favorite writing. Like I loved reading her about her relationship to her parents. I thought that was really. Um, she was. It's hard to write about one's parents, right? And she did it with. She really turned them into characters. I had a sense of them, but she did it with this kind of. You got the sense of her love and also her kind of looking at them, the particularity of their of their relationship. I also thought she wrote about, with a few exceptions, where I, I felt like some of the gender material felt familiar. I thought she wrote about being a woman and gender in a really. Um, you know, in 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 her own way that she made it her own. Um, although I thought the I think the girl mm. didn't come off. Um, but Katie, what did you think? I mean, I would agree with you that the essays. First of all, I think that part of a greater pattern. I would have loved that essay to have just been a shorter essay about the white girls yeah. and her. Um, there's all this stuff about a drowned squirrel in the pool. <laughs> I wasn't really sure yeah, what to do with, work. but I, I do work. agree with you that that was really wonderful material. She also has an essay, uh, D as in, that talks about mm-hmm. kind of the, the estrangement from yourself that you can experience when people call you the wrong name and, and sort of the strange process of realizing that it's not okay for people to call you the wrong name, which is, you know, uh, something that she actually had to grow into, a, a realization that she grew into. And I thought that was... Um, I guess I wouldn't say that I thought the writing in those in, in D as in, which is the name of that essay, was better than um, the writing elsewhere. But I did feel as though there were more takeaways in in, for instance, that essay and Upspeak, which is about her voice, her her kind of feminine sounding light uh, voice that makes people underestimate her, she said. Like those were essays where at least when I finished reading them, I knew what the essays had been about. Um, and I appreciated that. Um, yeah. So I, I actually think that... Interesting. Yeah. There's a precision in many of these pieces to the quality of kind of observational insight uh, in, in uh, is it uh, Diaz in A, uh, which you just alluded to, Katie, she has a bit, to be first generation means acquiescing to a lasting state of restlessness. It's as if you've inherited not just your family's not a DNA, but also the DNA acquired from their move, from veritable mileage, from the energy it took your parents to reestablish their lives. Um, th- that's a to me at least, a, a striking and, and, and somewhat insightful phrase. But it's also one that starts to pull together some of the threads mm-hmm. that may have seemed random or, or out of place or at least not quite structurally coherent. It's a thesis. In, in essays like yeah. Part of a Greater Whole, where, where yeah. there we start to see why it's so important for her to talk about her parents in the way she does. Because understanding their experience, their particularity is is so central to making sense of her own complex and fraught place in the world, her own liminality, her own particularity. Yeah. No, and I thought that was an aspect of the book, sort of cast across the book as a whole, that w- that was working. That you know, that there's a sort of intention there that's that's being made good on. Um, I agree, Katie. That D as an A isn't you know the necessarily the, the the writing that's the most arresting in the book, but it it feels important to what she's trying to talk about. I mean, one thing that's actually striking about the book is that even though this is clearly 
um, a big part of what she's thinking about is identity and marginality and being a child for, you know, first, first generation. There's a lot where that's not directly addressed, right? In many ways, she writes about it very indirectly, which is also um, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And part of her style is to kind of sidle up to things. And, I, and that quote you just read, I think we see part of where that is, the sort of acquiescence. It's almost like stylistically, she's also, you know, kind of saying, oh, okay, I'm going to come to this, but I'm not going to come frontally to it, which I thought was itself really a powerful evocation of um, – something about her own experience Mm -hmm. of identity in America and Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially in that that kind of ambiguity can be self-protective when you don't feel like you have the privilege or the power to say something outright that that kind of sideways sidle, as you say, Um, it, it can show that someone is in a less empowered or less autonomous position. And also at the same time, it's insistent. One one thing I really like about the book is it's insistent on its own individuality, right? So it's mm-hmm. not I. It's not a I am a category. It's I am an individual, and these happen to be the characteristics of my individuality. And one of those characteristics is that other people categorize me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very strange, you know, experience. Um, and I think she kind of, in this indirect way, really gets at that um, in ways that I I really liked. Yeah, there's a one of my favorite moments in the book also is in uh, Diaz and A. She talks about her discomfort with the first person singular pronoun with with the I uh, of the first person mm-hmm. uh, of the personal essay. Uh, she says, "How can an I contain all of my many fragments and contradictions and all of me that is undiscovered?" In some ways, the complex dance of negotiating uh, this intersectional liminal. Uh, identity that 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 she lives uh, is has stylistic consequences for her. I think it speaks to some of the uh, evasiveness that we see elsewhere in the book. Well, this has been so lovely. Uh, thank you guys for sharing your brilliant thoughts. And I, I honestly feel like the way you both speak about this book has been as rewarding and beautiful <laughs> as the, as reading the book, which is not to downplay the book. Um, I think it's a remarkable book. And I, I, would, <laughs> I would encourage everyone listening to this who hasn't read it to, to give it a shot. I'd say give it a try, you know, page through, see what you think. I think it's great. Um, but I can understand why mileage may vary. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure talking to you both. It was great to talk to you both. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash ABC. And for more books, check out the homepage for the Slate Book Review at slate.com slash books. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club and don't forget to leave a review while you're there. It really helps other people discover the show. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. And for other great podcasts, if you're looking for something else to listen to, I highly recommend uh, The Gist with Mike Pesca. It's about politics, culture, news, anything that crosses his fevered and wonderful brain. Um, And so please give The Gist with Mike Pesca a listen. You can find it at slate.com slash the gist or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch, and thanks for the assist, Dan Bloom. 
Slate's executive producer is Steve Liptai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Jacob Brogan and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening, and see you next month with Do Not Become Alarmed.